Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made from scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking about Resistance. Yes, that's right. Resistance. We resist all things in many ways, but today we're going to talk about resisting concentrated animal feeding operations. And to that end, my guest today on the phone is Diane Rosenberg, who has addressed factory farming issues for over 12 years. She is the president and executive director of Jefferson County Farmers and Neighbors Incorporated, a nonprofit educational foundation fighting the proliferation of factory farms in her southeast Iowa County. She has been affiliated with JFAN since 2007, and she is also an Iowa consultant with the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, a national organization that helps to empower local communities across the U.S. who want to help stopping help who want help sorry about that folks who want help stopping a factory farm and as if that were not already enough diane co-founded the iowa alliance for responsible agriculture in 2014 which is a coalition of 31 community state and national organizations in iowa IARA called for a statewide factory moratorium in 2016 and continues work on that goal. We're going to dive deep into that. And Diane plays a major role in the organization and management of IARA. Thanks so much for joining me today, um, Diane. And I, before I before we get off to the races, I just want to remind listeners that I did a couple of shows um, in Madrid that talked about resisting the proliferation of uh of these CAFOs and so if you want to sort of listen to a group here to see what the Spaniards are doing uh in the EU as opposed to what the Americans are doing in the United States that could be an interesting little counterpoint anyway Diane thank you so so much for joining me today um first of all you should tell us about your organization why and how and when uh did you get involved sure well thank you Katie for having me on today so um, I think I'll start with JFAN. That's my primary organization, Jefferson County Farmers and Neighbors. Um, we are a, uh, a 501c3 educational foundation. We got started in 2005 when a number of CAFOs were threatening right outside the um, little town of Fairfield, Iowa. Uh, JFAN is located in Jefferson County, Iowa, in the southeast corner of the state. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of awareness about about CAFOs, and these these, these uh, CAFOs were, were threatening. And a group of neighbors got together, and they very quickly educated themselves on the um, situation and on what a, a CAFO was, and realized very quickly they didn't want these uh, near their homes. 
And so they they came together and organized. I went to their first community meeting, which drew about, I think, 400 people. I was learning about the issue myself at the time. And and they were able to fight back and, and prevent these CAFOs from coming in. I think there were two separate ones that were that were threatening, and they realized that this was not a one-time deal. You know, in their education process, they learned that, you know, these CAFOs were were really making their way um, into Jefferson County. They felt at the time that that JFAN was um, targeted for increased development. Um, That was their opinion from what they were learning about these CAFOs. We do have a slaughterhouse the next county over, and... um, and uh, there's a slaughterhouse down not too far away in, in Missouri, south of us. So they felt that they really needed to maintain an ongoing presence. And, mm-hmm. and that's what they did. They, you know, they started to meet themselves, like, weekly and, um, and, and just, you know, continued the whole process. And, uh, and I came along uh, two years later in 2007, and I joined the board right before that I had been working um, as an editor of a community newspaper at the time, and we started covering this whole CAFO issue. We started covering um, the the uh, work that JFAN was doing, and when I moved on and, and left and started a consulting business, I, I, they asked me to join the board, and, um, and we've just been moving JFAN forward ever since. So what you guys do is 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 actually edu- you're an educational mission rather than a political organization. I, I just wanted you to dive into the into the sort of educational aspect of this because believe it or not, not everybody um, apparently realizes what it means <laughs> when a CAFO moves into sure, town. No, and so your organization has been very helpful in that. So tell us how you manage that. What do you do? Yes, so education, since we're an educational foundation, that's our mission. So that, that's really the foundation of all the work that we do. And other things obviously spring from it, but that's the foundation. And we do that in a, in a number of ways. We, we have a very information-dense website where it's jfaniowa.org, and we have a lot of really good information on there about the impacts of CAFOs and um, and and you know what they could mean if they come into your neighborhood, and um, and we feel that education is a very important um, component because an educated community is an empowered community. They understand what the problem is that they face when a CAFO comes in, and then they know what to do when it right. does. So um, so we also we you know we have a website, but we also do a lot in the community. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. We um, we do a lot of educational meetings. We have a large um, annual meeting that that we do once a year that draws four to five hundred people, and we usually get a fabulous speaker in um, for those meetings. We also you know do smaller meetings. I have a meeting coming up uh, in a couple of weeks with Dr. Chris Jones, who is doing a lot of research right now on the water pollution CAFO connection. I think you're going to have him on your on your, yeah, he'll um, be our, he'll be well. my guest next week. Actually, yes, absolutely. And um, you know, we we just recently did a, a meeting on odors, and you know, we'll, we'll do films, you know, that that address these issues. We had um, for about two years, we ran an educational ad series where we've had like an, a 
quarter page ad that went into our local newspaper and and you know on some particular topic you know and then we would mm-hmm. expound on it on our website we do a lot with our email list we've got you know in a community of 16,000 people a county of about you know 14 16,000 people we've got a you know a mailing list that you know reaches quite a number of them so um you know we we do a lot and as i said that forms our foundation for um, all our other work. And we also monitor for regularly, twice a week, for CAFO, um, new proposed CAFOs in Jefferson County. And um, when we find out that there's a, a CAFO that's proposed, we send out an information packet, um, you know, a letter talking about where it's going to go, um, what the, you know, the impacts are. And these are all impacts. Everything we send out, everything we educate on, is all based in over 50 years of respected peer-reviewed um, scientific studies. Right. So, you know, we, we are very confident in, in what we are telling people are the impacts that they, they may experience. Not everybody experiences all these impacts all the time, but enough to the degree that they're a concern for, for neighborhoods when these CAFOs come in. Sure. And sure. we send out an information packet that includes the map and where the manure is going to be is going to be applied. And we have a couple of booklets that I've done that that you know we send out too. One is how to protect your family and home from factory farms, which is a it's all on our website, which is a I think it's 24 pages now, and it, it, it talks about the impacts of CAFOs, different things people can do, and the legal rights that that people have in the state of Iowa. And um, because that's where JFAN is based. And then we also have another booklet about the, um, you know, risks that a CAFO um, could be uh, secondary liability. These are the risks that if you're applying manure, accepting manure or transporting manure, the legal risks that you face if you you, uh, violate any of the regulations. So we, we send that out. So it's a full package. And, and, you know, aren't those the regulations that farmers hate? Because, <laughs> I mean, I've heard farmers complain bitterly about like, oh, my God, I'm transporting manure and like one road apple falls on the road and I'm in trouble, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's a pretty hard sell, those regulations. Isn't that true? Well, that's, you know, they do like to complain about the regulations. <laughs> I, will, I will give them that. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, Iowa is not a heavily regulated state, you know, and, and that's right. one of the one of the issues that we have with these CAFOs. The regulations are not nearly strong enough to protect communities and and our um, our precious, you know, natural resource water. It, it, right. It's just and they're just not strong enough. Well, let's let's move on and talk for a minute about how sort of how do the how it works. So what. You know, describe quickly the the sort of the process for applying for a permit to develop a CAFO, um, because I know you guys, as you said, you monitor that twice a week, who's applying. And mm-hmm. then you have something called the master matrix and a scoring uh, that takes place. Are you the I wasn't quite clear whether you guys were the ones who developed the master matrix for scoring no. or whether that is already in place uh, as part of the Department of Environmental um uh, Department of Natural Resources or or the town supervisor. You know, take us through a little bit of that process. The system that we have, there's, there's different levels of 
of CAFO applications in Iowa. And uh, permits are only required for CAFOs that have 2,500 hogs or more. That's 1,000 animal units. And uh, to, to, to apply for a permit, they have a form to fill out. There is a, um, uh, an on-site inspection that takes place. And then in the counties that choose to adopt the master matrix, there's a 44-question application that they need to fill out as well. And I say the counties that choose to adopt this because every year, each county, every 99, each one of the 99 counties have to decide if they want to use this master matrix or not. And typically, you know, 11 don't and 88 do. And it's usually the same 11 that don't. Now, the master matrix is a, an additional questionnaire. It raises the bar just slightly um, for, um, on the level of regulations and, and, and different requirements that, that these CAFOs have to meet. And to understand why we have this master matrix, you have to understand that in 1995, um, we lost local control in the state. Um, there was a, a law that was passed, House file, I think it was 519, that was passed that basically said all regulation was now going to be top-down from the state, and counties did not have the ability any longer to, to decide if a CAFO site was appropriate for that particular county or not, and wow. for the neighbors involved in other things, tourism, et cetera. And so there was a big outcry on that. And a Stop few that. years later, um, because of this big outcry, the state legislature um, passed this law that basically uh, established the master matrix. And it was, it was developed by a um, commission of about 12 people. Some of them were members of um, the industry, some were members of the government, some were legislators, and some were members of environmental organizations. Um, it apparently was a very contentious process. Eventually, they got this very weak tool. And like I said, it's 44 questions, and, and every year, a county will decide if they want to do this or not. And if they do, what, it, it's kind of like lip service to local control because it's the supervisors that will review the master matrix, not, not the DNR initially. It's the supervisors that review the master matrix and decide if the questions that are answered, um, you know, if they're meeting the standards that they should be meeting. Now, it's, it's 44 questions. There's a total of 880 points that, that one can get on the master matrix, and they only have to have a passing score of 440 points. So oh when God. I went to school, yeah. 50% was an F, and I don't think that's changed. Okay. Um, that, that doesn't sound like too onerous a burden. Um, Diane, we're going to take a quick no. break here for a sponsor drop, and we're going to come right back, and I want you to talk to me about the Department of Natural Resources and their role in issuing permits. So stay tuned, folks. We're going to be right back with Diane Rosenberg uh, from the um, uh, uh, Jefferson County Farmers and Neighbors Association, or Incorporated, which helps people fight back against CAFOs. Stay tuned.
Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, we're back. This is Katie Kiefer, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm on the phone with Diane Rosenberg. She works with the Jefferson County Farmers and Neighbors Incorporated, uh, a nonprofit educational foundation that fights the proliferation of factory farms in Iowa. And we were talking about how uh, CAFO is able to get a permit. Um, and one of the key players in that, of course, is the Department of Natural Resources, and they are key to issuing permits. So are those are those DNR folks, are they elected or appointed officials? How, how do you get them? Let's start with that. Okay, so the people at the very top, the director, the assistant director, and um, the, the head of the animal feeding operation division, those are all appointed by the governor. And, uh-huh. um, you know, and so it, it, it's, it's a partisan position, truthfully. The people that work for the DNR, they are um, a mix, you know, of people. They're, they're hired, you know, they're hired. They're not appointed. So you have um, a partisan leadership with, with people working for the DNR under that. There's a lot of really good people at the DNR. I don't want to bash them, um, you know, completely because there's a lot of good people at the DNR. Um, really trying hard and, and not always um, and completely pleased with the way leadership is going. But there's also a lot of people that, you know, to my opinion, may have some conflicts of interest. So you may have right. uh, people working in the animal feeding division operations um, division, and um, and they may own CAFOs. So my... Oh, great. My, they my own CAFOs, that, so they're not likely to say no to a CAFO. Less likely, in my opinion, you know, or, or maybe <laughs> lean more toward allowing certain things that maybe somebody that doesn't own a CAFO might look at it a little differently. So, um, Like a property owner. So usually, <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, it's so stacked. It's just like, it's unbelievable, know. you know. I mean, to an outsider. I, I don't live in Iowa. I don't have a dog in this fight. But I'm just saying, like, the idea that these are appointed, first of all, that this, the top is appointed by the governor. The governor is elected by the people, essentially, who, uh, you know, own them. 
uh, because that's how government works in our country now. And then, you know, the odd property owner is allowed to sit on the DNR. But I mean, you know, clearly, you know, it is so stacked against anyone but somebody who wants to work in this particular part of the industry. It's just, it's laughable. Let's talk for a second about the Farm Bureau, because you said when we talked a few weeks ago, you said you described the Farm Bureau as being the fourth branch of your state government. How do they tie into this equation? Well, um, I didn't make that up. <laughs> this, is, this is what many people. Okay. This is what many people say that work, um, you know, that have connections, you know, with with state government, um, or even county government. And um, so, Farm Bureau is, you know, an insurance company. Many people get their farm insurance from Farm Bureau, and oh. um, you know, and they. Theoretically, well, they say they support uh, family farmers and, and what have you, but, but Farm Bureau um, is very pro-corporate um, agriculture. Uh, they're mm. very powerful in the state, and, you know, yeah. pretty much um, anything that has to do with agriculture, you know, they weigh in on, and very strongly. And just so you have a sense of how powerful they are in the state, they have an 89 uh, million dollar operating budget, um, and eighty four percent of it comes from its for profit insurance arm, um, FBL Financial Group. Now that wow. that operating budget is twice as large as the American Farm Bureau. So, wow! I mean, just think what you could do with an eighty nine million dollar operating budget. Yeah. And um, and I have talked with uh, I talked with one of my former state senators. Who, who told me um, a number of years ago, this was true a number of years ago, and I'm going to assume it's probably still pretty true, um, uh, where Farm Bureau would have, she said Farm Bureau would have a meeting every week with um, their state legislators where they kind of outlined what they would like them to, to focus on and where they oh would want God. them to, you know, to put their, their votes. And she said, I never saw anything like this before. Oh and God, Diane! Even on the county that's, just, level. That's, that's really sickening. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Anyway, well, yeah, and I mean, even on the county level, recently, <laughs> I went to a, a farm bureau meeting. So I, I've been going fairly regularly to my supervisor meetings, and I noticed on the agenda they had a meeting with farm bureau. And I know they have these farm bureau meetings every year, and you know. I, I said, is this a public meeting? Because all the supervisors were going to be there. Yeah, it's a public meeting. So so one of my my colleagues and I, somebody from the Sierra Club, in, in our local Sierra Club and I, we actually went to that Farm Bureau meeting where our supervisors were because, you know, well, it was a public meeting. I was curious what they wanted to talk to our supervisors about on, on their own terms. And, uh, it, you know, I, I had a a little bravery in my spine, but I did it. And um, and it was interesting because basically Farm Bureau, the, the supervisors were just reporting to the Farm Bureau members stuff that I'd been hearing at the county supervisors meetings, you know, but they wanted their own private audience. And wow. I found out that they were, you know, other Farm Bureau um, organizations, county organizations were doing that with other supervisors. And I thought to myself, why do they get a special meeting with our supervisors. If I asked JFAN, you know, if, if, if I'm, I asked the supervisors to come to a JFAN meeting and we opened it up to the public, 
would they come? Would they come to the myriad of other organizations? Would they have the time? You know, to right. do that. Right. It, it just it, it really opened my eyes even further to the, the levels of Farm yeah. Bureau influence. So so they you know they are considered hefty. You know, a hefty weight in the state. Not, oh, clearly. You know, yeah. By many people around the state. Well, let's let's move on for a second. I, I'm I'm trying to understand what is driving the growth of the industry in Iowa. Um, the way that it is, you know, to the point where you have whole counties that are really pretty much given over to concentrated uh, animal feeding operations. And then you have counties like Jefferson that are trying to hold the line. So so who who is actually driving this? Is it Iowans who want to get in on the game? Because frankly, the price of pork is not that great. Like I would not be anxious to do this if I were a farmer. Um, or is it big agribusinesses who come in from out of state and then contract with local farmers uh, to raise pork for them. Like it's, I guess I, I'm trying to get at whether or not it's like individual local guys who think this is going to be, you know, their road to prosperity, or or um, is it, you know, big businesses that are making it hard for them to raise pork any other way? Okay, that's sort of two type two types of questions there, but you'll answer them. <laughs> so yeah, who's doing yeah. it? Who's driving? So, you know, this? it's it's kind of. Uh, it's it's a hybrid answer, okay? Mm-hmm. So most CAFOs, so in Jefferson County, most of the, the people that do build CAFOs, they're contracting. They're, they're local farmers, and they're contracting with um, these integrators, these, these corporations, the JBSs right. out of Brazil, the um, uh, Trioc, which is a, a more local but they're huge. So they, they contract with these integrators, and they, um, they raise the hogs for these, these corporations. Um, right. They build the buildings themselves, and if you're going to put up a 2,500-head um, CAFO, that comes in at about three-quarters of a million dollars for a 2,500-head sure. CAFO. Um, so they're, they're responsible for the building. And then they, um, you know, they get the hogs, the feed, the directions, how to raise detailed directions, I've been told, by oh, an yeah, attorney for the DNR. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, and, um, and veterinary care, the, you know, the whole thing. They get it all. So they're raising. They're almost like, um, it's almost like a serf, in a sense, for the They are. It's, the it's indentured servitude. It's, I mean, it's it's proliferated. First it was the poultry industry, and then the hog industry basically, yes. uh, you know, emulated that same model. So it is, I mean, largely across yes. the United States, there were very few independent hog farmers. Almost all of them are, because of the, the difficulty in securing um, uh, processing facilities, they, they're kind of obliged to sign on to this program. Uh, for various reasons. I don't want to, you know, most of my listeners are pretty familiar with kind of how this works because I've done so many programs around contract farming. But I I was just trying to get at like, you know, I guess my point was like local farmers who might have wanted to remain independent, I think it sounds to me like they are sort of being forced into this contract model. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, because that's the only, typically the easiest and sometimes the only way that they can actually get, um, you know, loans in order to farm. 
Aha, uh, there's a little wrinkle I hadn't anticipated. I was going to say it was the production end of it, meaning that if you own 2,500 hogs or say 5,000 or 10,000 hogs, uh, you know, you, you have no place to go with your pigs to slaughter them unless you sign up to use, to be part of this contractor's, uh, you know, slaughtering facility. Cause that's a big problem for certainly for chicken farmers. Well, that's, um, I want to move on yeah, though, cause no, we're, we're kind of bogging of down it. a little that's, bit. Did you want to say something? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's part of it. But, but what I see with the contract growers is that a number of them are actually building CAFOs because they want the manure for their crops, and um, because it's cheaper for them to, I don't, I don't, haven't seen the, the spreadsheet, but apparently it's cheaper for them to build a CAFO. Um, probably the what they get for the pig covers the cost of the building, but then you know they have this manure that they want that they put on their land, and that's actually cheaper for them than buying anhydrous um, fertilizer to put on their land. So a number of people do that here in Jefferson County. Uh, as well as around the state. But I also, with my work with, with the Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, SRAP, I work around the state. And there it's a mix of these contract growers, say for the, all the reasons that we're talking about, and and also the um, uh, the integrators. Like I'm working right now with somebody in Pocahontas County, and they've got an Iowa Select uh, CAFO that's coming in, 5,000 hogs right half a mile north, Oof. half a mile south of, of this woman's home with her four, four small children. And, um, and so, so it's really a mix, a, a real mixture. I'm concerned that the way our agricultural um, uh, economic climate is going, we're going to lose even some of these contract growers and get more of the CAFO, um, the, the integrators building their own, you know, kind of ah. buying out some of these, these people, because then they're, worried, they're harder to work with to try to stop these. Um, I don't know. It, it's to be seen where that's all going to go. And I, I just want to make another point going back to the loans. Yeah. Um, and it's easier for a CAFO owner to walk into a CAFO rather than a smaller independent operation because they've got a contract and the banks will give them a, a loan because with, a get, with, a, with an integrator where they've got the contract, they can get a guaranteed loan from the government, USDA sure. guaranteed loan. For, that covers 85 to 95% um, of the, that covers, you know, guarantees 85 to 95% of the loans. So that makes it easy for the banks to say, sure. You know, we'll yeah. give you the money for this. Not so easy if you're doing an independent farm, which I found out when I was trying to work with someone to switch him from a a, a large-scale um, facility to a, a, an independent smaller-scale one. Very interesting. Thank you for making that point because that's that's new to me. I hadn't realized that. Um, I want to rush rush along a little bit here now. So one of the major things that your organization and other activist groups that you're working with uh, is to pass a moratorium on building new CAFOs in the state of Iowa. Now, North Carolina, amazingly enough, was able to succeed in this. Um, but you guys are still sort of on that threshold. And there was a big rally and lobbying day on February 21st in, I guess, Des Moines in front of the state house. Um, tell me, you know, tell us what happened on that day. Like, where where do you guys stand now on that and some of the other regulations that you were hoping to see pushed forward? 
Sure. So that's where the Iowa Alliance for Responsible Agriculture comes in, this coalition of 31 um, community, state, and, and national organizations in, you know, in Iowa here. And, um, and we, we called for a moratorium in 2016. Uh, we wound up speaking with a, um, a senator who, in the next year, who wanted to do some, he was part of the Master Matrix um, Commission and felt that, that, you know, he felt responsible, you know, for the state of affairs, not realizing it was going to get the way it was with the Master Matrix. And so he started to visit a lot of communities around the state, and when he met with the Iowa Alliance, he asked, you know, what can I do? What kind of laws do you want? You know, how can I help? What can, you know, and so we said moratorium. And we also gave him other, other, you know, laws that we wanted to see. And he actually took the ball and ran with it. And in the 2018 session, introduced a moratorium bill, as well yeah. as uh, 14 other bills to close a lot of loopholes. And, um, and that bill obviously didn't go too far. Um, you, you know, he sponsored it in the House and we had maybe in the Senate, and we had maybe seven or eight people sponsoring it, co-sponsoring it in the House. Well, we've been using, you know, this moratorium platform. We've been advocating for this since 2016, and yeah. it's growing in momentum around the state. We even had a couple of, of governors uh, in the candidates in the 2006, uh, 2018 um, primaries, you know, come out in support of the moratorium. So mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely gaining ground. And this year, uh, Senator David Johnson wasn't um, at the Senate any longer. He retired. But we had another senator introduce the bill and had uh, four other co-sponsors with her on it this year. And in the House, we had 20 people behind the House version. So we're starting to see movement and momentum. And when we went to the State House, we had a moratorium day that was sponsored by the Iowa Alliance along with Food and Water Watch and um, uh, Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, who are both also part of the Iowa Alliance. We had a lobby day. We brought in about 100 people um, that came. We met with our legislators all morning long, and in the afternoon we had a, a press conference mm-hmm. and a rally. And, you know, just, you know, all these different organizations there, banners, what have you. Um, and one of the members of the Iowa Alliance shared with us later on that um, a couple of legislators talked with her afterward and were real impressed with the turnout and said, you know, and real impressed with the number of organizations involved and said, you know, you keep this up and we're going to have to do something soon, you know. So I'm I'm quite encouraged with, you know, the, the, the work, you know, the journey for getting a moratorium is a slow process. Um, yeah. it's, it's a process that educates, continues to educate people on the factory farming issues and impacts and what have you. Um, and I, I tell people who expect that it's going to be an overnight deal, it's not. But we're making yeah. our way slowly but surely. When In 2016, when the Iowa Alliance first came out with, you know, announcing that, announced their existence, um, and then announcing that, you know, we're advocating for a moratorium. Two months later, Webster County, Iowa, issued a letter to the state um, and their legislators, the governor and the legislators, saying, we need to fix this master matrix, which doesn't work very well at all. 
and we support a pause, a halt. They didn't use the word moratorium, but they were in essence saying, we support a moratorium until we get the master matrix fixed. And and then then these different counties started following suit. So now we have 25 counties, that's a quarter of all the counties in Iowa, 25 counties that are either calling for a moratorium or they're calling for changes to the master matrix to better regulate um, KFOs in Iowa. Well, that's I think it's hugely huge. encouraging. We, we, I mean, really good news. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, why don't you uh, take this moment to promote your organization shamelessly? People can keep up with what's going. Uh, tell us where your website is and um, and also like how uh, people can get in touch so that they can learn how to do this in their own states if they need to. Certainly. So the um, JFAN is uh, um, the, the website is jfaniowa, J-F-A-N-Iowa.org. Um, as I mentioned, we're in southeast Iowa. We, we help communities um, in, in Jefferson County, but we also have a training program for helping other communities in the state uh, learn to be an organization like JFAN. And if you contact us, um, our email is, is jfan at lisco, L I S as in Sam, C as in cat, O.com. Um, you can reach us, and I'd be more than happy to talk with you. The Socially Responsible Agricultural Project, this is a national organization, and we help communities around the state, or excuse me, around the country, that are right. dealing with CAFOs coming into their, their communities. And they can be reached at, um, they have, a, I don't know the number offhand, but on their website is SRA Project. Org and their their contact number is is on that is on that page. They are a fabulous organization. We've got amazing people working for that, and and they help a lot of people. Um, That's great. And then well, Diane, um, the thank Iowa you Alliance so so much for this because I mean I think you know people need to recognize that these ships turn slowly but they turn and that you know it's important to get active and it's important to have organizations like yours. Uh, helping people understand what their rights are, especially. So I really appreciate the work you do, and I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks so much. And thanks to my sponsor and to my uh, endlessly patient engineer. (laughs) Thanks for my listeners for listening. See you next week, folks. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.